Hi, good morning, everybody. How are you today? Oh, it's so nice to see you. How have you been? Well, hey, well, as Steve said, we are uh, looking at some tough questions in this, in this series, and you've asked us difficult questions, and the answers have been, uh, have been fascinating to put together, and, uh, and so we are going to continue on in this today. Um, what we've been doing, though, is looking at these deeper questions that people have about philosophy, about theology, about life, and how these things kind of smash together, and we're looking at it through a biblical lens. And the idea is, is we're not going to avoid the tough stuff here at Cornerstone Fellowship because if God sees to it to bring up these topics in Scripture, then that is his invitation to each of us to, uh, to do deep dive, to study, to wrestle, to see about what he says with uh, these perplexing polarities that life throws at us. And so we're going to look at today uh, in that same arc this question about uh, creation and evolution. Here it is, uh, the, the detailed question that you asked us to cover week five. Does belief in a creator mean evolution is impossible? Does belief in crea a creator mean evolution is impossible? And so this is dealing now with the question of origins, all right? The different perspectives that people have of, of like, how did all of this come about? Everything that we see, the universe, the stars, the, the, our solar system, and then biological life on this planet, how did it happen? Did we evolve through a biological process of Darwinian evolution, which involves natural selection, and it involves beneficial mutations, or, or, okay, or did God create us through the sovereign divine act of creative power uh, according to his will and purposes? This is a big issue today. Isn't this a big issue? A lot of you had this question or variations of this question. And so uh, we're going to look at this in this big issue today. And then furthermore, what if anything does the Bible tell us about this topic? And what the Bible does cover, is it reliable? Uh, does it make sense in today's scientific age, uh, intellectually speaking? Now, speaking of science, we might as well just continue to ask tough questions around this. Let me say this. To what degree can Christian people build a coherent belief system around a firm commitment to both the truth of Scripture and the facts of science? Is it even possible to integrate those two? Is it even possible? Many people actually say, no, it's not possible. Uh, perhaps you've noticed this before. Maybe in the cultural conversation, things, uh, things seem to be shifting in this direction. This idea of, don't you go mixing your science and your religion, all right? Don't go mixing those two because they're completely different categories. In fact, they're actually contradictory, so it goes. There's two different narratives. There's two different theories about how the universe existed, and it's the same universe. They're not two different ones, and so the message is then you have to choose one. Are you a science person or are you a faith person? Is anybody tracking with me on this? Make a choice because you can't have both. We could just summarize the dilemma here. Pick one. Pick an anti-science faith or pick an anti-religious science. Oh, and by the way, if you choose religion, you're kind of a pitiful, moronic half-wit because science has already disproved everything that Christianity has said. Or, let's flip the switch on this, speaking of this polarity, we have some religious people who are so steeped in their sort of fear of science that they actually belittle science, and they're afraid of it. And so that mentality really bothers me. This, uh, this polarity really bothers me. It really burns my bacon. I'll tell you why. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to pick one. Because the Bible never actually presents that dilemma for us. 
God actually wants us to have uh, a, a cohesive, coherent perspective that involves both of these things. That's my perspective that I'm, that I'm uh, advocating today. I want to actually give you an example of how the Bible does this. It brings these two together. Turn then in your scriptures to Psalm chapter 19. Uh, Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament, and this was written around 3,000 years ago by King David, presumably as David stared up into the night sky and saw the beauty and the splendor of the created world. And here's what David tells us. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, the heavens in this case isn't like heaven, like, like eternal heaven, the eternal resting place heaven. The heavens here, the word is, is sky or atmosphere. So he's saying this, the heavens, the atmosphere declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. And day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They reveal knowledge. If you're tracking with me and you can do this, circle this in your Bible or t double tap those words in your electronic version, highlight that. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So here, God is telling us something. He's saying, I want my kids to go out into creation and really study it. Really study it. Because when you study my creation, God is telling us here, you're going to find out a lot of stuff. You're going to find out a lot of stuff about, about God and his character and who he is. You're going to find out a lot of stuff about yourself and how this world works. And so therefore, part of God's will for us is that we would engage in a careful and detailed study of his creation. Why? Because it's going to reveal necessary knowledge to us. And so then, this verse and others in the Bible paint a picture of a God who speaks truth to us through two different sources. First, the source of Scripture. And so we grab onto that. He also speaks to us through the source, the scientific source of creation. And his will for us is that we would embrace and examine both. God says you don't have to choose one over the other. I want you to engage your mind in both. Do you believe this? Now, speaking of bringing faith and science together, I believe there is an incredible hunger for this, for, for pastors and church leaders to create frameworks and possibilities for people to, to do this, on-ramps for people to, to bring faith and science together. Uh, I've, I've noticed this my, my whole adult life. Actually, it first came to uh, sort of my attention in college, my, my university years, and I was... Um, at University of Southern California, the finest university in the world. <laughs> Duh, yeah. And so in, in engineering, and uh, Christy, my wife now, we were, uh, we were in school together, and she had a biology lecture, and it was a large lecture, four or 500 students. And this, the professor was definitely coming at it from this sort of anti-religious bias. He was presenting the, the material in a way that was really upsetting her, and so she, she told me about it. Why did she tell me about it? Because I was friend-zoned, okay? I was friend-zoned. I was buddy. I was pal. I was like, oh, let me listen to what is bothering you, Billy. That's my role in her life. And so I heard all about this class. And so one time I suggested, hey, maybe, Krista, you could 
uh, meet with the professor and uh, suggest that he devote one class to the other perspective, the creation, uh, the creation perspective, the Christian perspective. Why don't you offer to bring in a Christian PhD biologist to give a, a guest lecture? And she says, well, I don't know any Christian PhD biologists. And I said, I do. And I didn't. I was lying. And so off, off she goes, and before I know it, she comes back and says, yeah, we got a date. The professor's all game for it, so bring your person in. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. So God was in this. Uh, this is not a theological uh, story, okay? This is just more of a, this just happened story. And I found a person, this brilliant uh, PhD Christian biologist professor in San Diego, and he came up, and uh, he, he gave a, a guest lecture for the class. And I got to tell you, he killed it. He crushed it. He murdered this lecture. I mean, the students were on the edges of their seats, and they were just locked into the content. And he was really effective at presenting this in a one-shot deal. And after the class was over with, at least a third to a half of the class Class came down. They wanted to know more about it. He had information laid out on the stage. I mean, they were really hungry for this. And while this was happening, Christy and I were talking to the professor, and he said, I had no idea you kids were still interested in this stuff. And I am going to, I'm going to bring this guy back in every time I, 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 I teach this lecture. This is so great. That's a good day. That's a good day. It's not a good day. That's a good day. You know what else made it a good day? I got out of the friend zone that day. <laughs> I did, I did, and the rest is history, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Who says geeks can't get married, okay? If you're a nerd out here, and you're a geek, and you're depressed about it, hey, I am your example. It can happen. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. <laughs> you do have to have some social IQ, though. I'll just say that. Okay, that's a different <laughs> sermon. <laughs> what we're doing here is we're dispelling the myth the social myth, this hangs around like fact, but it's not fact, it's a myth. Here's the myth. If science did it, then God didn't do it. If science did it, then God didn't. What I mean is if science did something or can explain something or cause something and we can measure that process, we can shove it into a lab and break it down and then understand the mechanics and we can even repeat that process through the scientific method, uh, that means then, so it goes, that, that God wasn't involved. And so the secular scientist then would say, hey, my discovery, my new scientific discovery shows yet another thing that God didn't do. That's, that's a real sentiment. Uh, Stephen Hawking, do you know Stephen Hawking? Yeah. Or of him? Uh, he just recently passed away. Brilliant astrophysicist, I mean, highest order thinker. He wrote a book five years ago called The Grand Design. And in this book, he argues that there is now no longer any need to see God in the universe because science has sufficiently explained the functions and the mechanics of the physical world enough that faith is not needed. It's irrelevant. And so the grand design for Dr. Hawking does not include a grand designer. What's the Christian response to this? It's different than Dr. Hawking's POV, isn't it? Here's what we believe. We believe that science is the way that God normally works in the universe, upholding and sustaining what he has created, the physical world. And so scientific processes, things like Newtonian physics, Einsteinian physics, atomic physics, electricity, magnetism, biology, all of these complex 
frameworks, these topics, they reveal the brilliant mind of God who created all of this, and all of this structure enables the universe to operate and not spin out of existence. And so knowing more science then with this perspective means that we, it's not that we don't trust God less, it simply means now we're thinking more of God's thoughts after him. And so the more science we know, the more appreciation we have of God. He is a magnificent genius. And so new scientific discoveries actually are this cause, this impetus that causes us to then go deeper into our worship. Much like when you're hiking around Diablo or at the beach, Half Moon Bay, and you see a sunset, the gorgeous sunsets of the Bay Area. And you see how when the sun hits the horizon and the light just reflects off of the clouds and there's colors and, and there's beauty and there's splendor. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'm in these situations and I just kind of drop to my knees or I kind of pull off to the side a little bit and I just, I just take a moment and I thank God because I'm so filled with gratitude for his awesomeness and for his splendor and for what he has accomplished just in that little moment, which is nothing to God. And so a new scientific discovery is just very similar. So I could summarize it. For some of you geeks, you need it to be kind of packaged. Some of you nerds. Here's what I'm going to say to you. God created calculus, and then he created us with the intellect to learn it. Some of you are groaning because calculus is hell on earth. I know. I know. But I would just say we talked about hell last week, so you'll have to go back and listen to Pastor Steve's message on that. The point here is that when we engage in the study of science, it's a beautiful act of worship. And so we've got a lot of STEM people here at Cornerstone. We do. Not everybody's a STEM person here. I understand that. We've got a lot of STEM people, science, technology, uh, mathematics. You know, we've got a lot of folks like the engineers. And that's, you know, part of it's because we have the lab right down the road, Hawking's Laboratory. Yeah? Anybody? Anybody? That's a Stranger Things reference? No one gets it. No, a few of you get it. You get a free donut if you're that nerdly that you understand that. I want to encourage you, if you're STEM, to go out this week and be reanimated and do good science, good, do, do good technology and engineering and mathematics, because why? That is your worship song to Jesus. You are living out Psalm 19 in real time and space. That's the Christian teaching. All right, with that in mind, that's just the preliminaries. All right, I want to give you now, I want to just head straight at the question. Just go right at it and give you three different biblical approaches to the evolution creation dilemma. There are, there's more, there's, there's three main views that Christians settle into. Actually, there's a fourth view, and that view is the I don't know and I don't care view, uh, and I just covered it in full. So I'll do the other three now. Three different conclusions to, to one set of biblical texts. And so let's read the text. Let's read Genesis 1. Let's read some of this. So turn there in your Bibles now to Genesis 1. We're not going to read the whole passage, but let's start in verse 1. <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, what did God do? He created. The rest of the Bible just kind of expands on this first sentence. 
Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And and it was so. And God called the dry ground land and gathered waters, the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Of course, it goes on to describe the rest of creation, rest of life on earth in chapter one. And then in chapter two, it sort of takes a second pass at the same story. It gives us different details. It gives us the same details. And altogether, don't we have this beautiful text? This, there's logic and there's mystery in these words, words that have captivated millions of people for thousands of years. To this day, we are still completely enamored with the brilliance of Genesis 1 and 2. It's a spectacular text, isn't it? But it's not an easy text. It's not an easy text. And that's why we have three different models that suss out from this. I mentioned those three a moment ago. I just want to throw them up on the screen. We're going to talk about them a little bit. Here they are. Three models of origins. One is young earth creationism. Second is old earth creationism. And then third is evolutionary creationism. I'm going to quickly sketch out some details of this. I'm not going to be able to dive into these uh, very deep because this is just one message, just one pass at this. But hopefully this makes you curious enough to uh, to study this on your own uh, as, we, uh, as we end this series. Let's talk about young earth creationism. What, is, what does this say? This says that God created all things by instantaneous command. But it also says that the, the creation process happened then in six 24-hour periods. And so God created uh, everything, all of life, going from nothing to full life during the creation week in 144 hours. And then as such, uh, along its name, the, uh, the young earth position says that the age of the earth is actually only six to 10,000 years old. And so this is, um, this is a view that, uh, that is widely held, and it's got so much to it. And if you want to know more about it, you can go to this organization, the Institute of Creation Research. There's a great website they have to talk all about this position, and you can learn all of the uh, ins and outs of it. Secondly, is young earth creationism, excuse me, old earth creationism. In this view, it says that God created all things by instantaneous command. However, the difference between the first and the second one is, is that here, creation happened over long periods of time. And so the days of creation, according to this view, are long successive ages, long periods, and God would take time to create through a process orientation, a kind of a level of the environment, a level of the created order, and then he would move on to the next level after that one was complete. And so uh, that's how he built the world and the universe. And so this view, in a sense, kind of believes in this blend of supernatural and natural processes to construct the universe and the life and all of life on earth. 
And according to its name then, we can uh, say that this view says the age of the earth is between four and five billion years old, approximately. The age of the universe, 13.7 billion, something like that. And then uh, so much here, so much here, guys. There's a wonderful organization called Reasons to Believe. Uh, it's a, a Christian organization. It's headed by a guy named Hugh Ross, who is a, a Caltech guy. And uh, the website is reasons.org. You're going to get lost in these websites, so I don't uh, recommend you do this at work, okay? Do this at home. <laughs> and then finally, you have this third position. It's called evolutionary creationism. And this is what this view says. It says, God guided the biological process of evolution to create all life. The biological process of evolution, that is, I described it a little bit earlier. You have a, a series of beneficial mutations in our DNA at the smallest levels and kind of progressively gets more and more. And then through natural selection, God guided this process. It was God guided, God governed it. Uh, the, uh, the, the process to the, see the, the abundance of life that we have today. Now, this is important on this view to understand that evolutionary creationists believe in the statistical impossibility of secular evolution. Are you with me on this? They would say there's no way from a probability standpoint that secular evolution, that is, there is no God, there is no governing force, that is simply just a random conglomeration of particles that sort of clump together and randomly produce life. That's secular evolution. And so there is a philosophy behind secular evolution that evolutionary creationists divorce themselves from it. Because they say it's not possible. The universe is too young, even at 13.7 billion years, to create the life, the complexity. There's just not, the, the randomness is too great. And besides, even if you had sort of this statistical anomaly of, of, of things coming together, well then what animated that thing? And so... Uh, there is a huge chasm between uh, evolutionary creationists and secular evolutionists. You guys get that? Man, that was, I actually, I mean, I just impressed myself. That was actually pretty good. <laughs> the age of the earth is four to five billion years old. For further study, fabulous website, fabulous organization, Biologos, biologos.org. And so, if you just take this third view then, and you go right at our question. So, yes. If you're in this camp, yes, Christians can harmonize evolution and creation. It's not atheistic evolution, because the view again here is that God created us, God guided it, he just used the biological processes of evolution to do so. So that's how this shakes out. That's how this shakes out. So there's variety here. But then there's a the question that I think some of you are asking, we're going to answer. Another question is, how can these different models all be based on the same passages of Scripture? Isn't there, like, there's a lot of variety here, right? There's some divergence here. So aren't some Christians wrong on this? I want to talk about this. This is important. The reason why we have a lot of room under the umbrella on this issue is that we're actually not sure what type of writing the author of Genesis is using when we study these first two chapters. Are we supposed to read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as a literal historical narrative account, or are we supposed to read it more as a figurative account, not to be taken so literally? And so here's what I'm saying. Here's the teaching. If we're completely honest with the text, and we don't impose our biases, we're just not sure. 
I told you this wasn't an easy text. And some of you are mad at me right now because you thought you had this all figured out. I want you to stay with me. I want to talk about biblical interpretation for a second. Because when it comes to interpreting biblical material, the best way to respect the authority of Scripture and the authority of the biblical authors is to take them as they want to be taken. And sometimes they want to be taken literally, and sometimes they don't want to be taken literally. We must listen to them and not impose our agenda on the text. And so we ask, how does this author want to be understood? This is just, we call this biblical hermeneutics. It's how do you interpret the text? How does this author that's writing this biblically inspired text, how do they want to be understood? And by the way, this is just, I don't know, this is just common courtesy with all communication, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it just common courtesy to respect people when we interact with them in our conversations, to take them as they want to be taken? And so if someone is, is being serious with us, and they're trying to get through something serious, and they're not joking, but let's say we took them as if they're joking, isn't it offensive to the, the, the communicator? Now, if you're married, you know this. I'm not speaking from experience, I'm asking for a friend. All right. <laughs> if you walk by two people and they're talking, and they're laughing with each other, and one of them says to the other one, oh man, stop it, you're killing me. You're killing me with this. And you hear that. I believe it would be most unwise to take that person literally because it would be a huge mistake to step in and pepper spray that guy. <laughs> it's the same with the Bible. It's the same with the Bible. Here's the problem, though. The challenge is that sometimes the author's intent is not as crystal clear as to the type of writing. We call that, what genre is this? What genre is this text? Is this poetic? Is this historical? Is this apocalyptic? Apocalyptic literature in the Bible is very difficult because it's filled with imagery and futuristic, you know, writing. And it's, it's like, okay, what does this mean? What does the mark of the beast mean? I don't know. I don't know. It's just like, it's like what, how do we take this? And it drives, the genre drives how we interpret it. And in many cases, there are clear signals, there's markers, and we can get that genre exactly right. But with Genesis 1 and 2, is this history or is this poetry like we just read in Psalms? Psalms 19, uh, uh, David is talking about the, uh, the, the skies and the atmosphere, and he's talking about it with poetic language. And then he literally says in it, I'm not being literal with that, but they still speak language. And so there's a conveyance of truth through both history in this text and with, uh, with poetry. Or is Genesis not just one or the other, is it a blend of both? Our text has signals of both, poetry and history, intertwined together. All right, so now I'm in this deep. I might as well nerd out a little further. Let's talk about the historical and the poetic genre of Hebrew literature for a moment. First, Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry has repetitions to it, like choruses in a song. The poetic term is strophes, and we find them here in our text. We read this evening and morning. That comes up over and over again, doesn't it? That phrase? You're supposed to say yes, okay? Because it's there. And there's another phrase. It was good. That's repeating. Thank you, person in the second row. I love you. You're the best. Did you see this? All right, that's one signal. But there's also this, uh, 
this phenomena in Hebrew poetry called parallelisms. Parallelisms are fascinating because there's this linguistic correlation and symmetry and balance to it. And what I mean is, uh, for example, in, on days one, two, and three, one, two, and three, God is creating realms. And then on days four, five, and six, God is creating rulers for these realms. So in day three, God creams, creates the realm of the land. And then he creates on day six, the ruler of the realm of land. Humans. Perfect Hebrew parallelism. Parallelism. So there's there. That's there. All right, let's talk about history. The passage is telling us clearly that creation happened in history, in human time. God created. That is clear. And yet there's challenges with this genre because uh, when it comes to the historical material in the Bible, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you know this can be frustrating. The ancient writers often told us about historical event, events, and they felt free to compress time frames. We wouldn't do that today. They did that back then. They also felt very free to dechronologicalize things. Is that a word? It is now. You were here when it happened. They told things out of order. They told things out of order. Also, they would leave out just tons of useful bits of information that we would love for them to have told us, and yet they just didn't put it in there. And it just frustrates us because they're leaving out essential things that we want to know about. And you know what the ancient writers are doing through the annals of time is they're looking at us and they're saying, well, what's important to you guys wasn't important to us back then, so deal with it. So what do we do with this mashup? Ah, I don't know. But one commentator described the blending of the genres in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, he, he describes it as exultant prose. Exultant prose. Prose is a historical component. Exultant is the poetic component. So he's attempting to put this together. And so we see richness and complexity, and honestly, I wish it were more simple, but it's not, so we just have to take it as God gives it to us. And so we wrestle with the text, we read the text, we talk about the text, and this then, all of this gives us room to arrive at different views that we just summarized. And so we listen carefully, and we give latitude to one another, latitude to one another as we wrestle with this beautiful gift called our Bibles. Now, I know what some of you are thinking at this point. You're saying, okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe Billy, you could tell us what you believe here. We want to know what you think about this. I'm not going to tell you, okay? I'm just not. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to frustrate you. But what I really want to do is to inspire you to dig deeper for yourself. Have discussions in your community groups. Work through those websites. Read and reread the text. Learn the different nuances of the views. There are strengths and weaknesses to each of these. And so take a position. By all means, take a position, and you don't have to be insecure about that position. But then we give respect to those who don't land in the exact same place as us when it comes to the mechanics of creation. And that, my friends, is a good exercise. That's mature Christianity. So I'm not going to tell you what, where I land, but I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you that God is a brilliant mind way beyond our comprehension. And that mind, that God, he created you. He created you. He intended for you to be here. You are not an accident. Maybe some of your parents told you you were an accident. You are not an accident. You are here by the will and the purposes of God. 
You are not an aberration of statistical uh, probability. You are not an accident of random particles just kind of randomly forming. He animated you with his very breath. God designed you. He uniquely wired you with gifts and abilities and passions and personality and experiences that nobody else who has ever lived is living now or who will ever live in human time has. You are a unique, distinct combination of you. And God knows everything about you. How much does God know about you? Everything. Every single thought, emotion, and action you've ever had or ever will have, God is totally locked into you. He knows your circumstances. He knows your challenges. The Lord knows the things that you find funny, and the Lord knows the things that tee you off. He knows your motivations. In fact, the Lord knows why you do the things that you do, even when you don't know why you do the things you do. And so why does God take the trouble to collect all this data about you? Imagine the hard drives in heaven. <laughs> it's because you tend to notice things that you care about. Hmm. He's a good God who loves you. And that's the most important thing here. When we talk about creation and we talk about the mechanics of creation, we actually need to talk about the love of God intersecting with your life and with my life because that kind of love and care will change a person. So this isn't a make or break issue when it comes to our faith. All right? It's second thing. It's second order importance. It's important. But you know what really is important here? The gospel. This is what unites us. Jesus Christ unites us. What Christ accomplished on the cross and the fact, the fact, the historical fact that he rose from the grave. That's core. That's central. That's center of the target. Our sin has been bought and paid for. That objective reality is the unifying force that we can all agree on. Other things, like this, yes, they're important. But we focus on the fact that God did it. That's core. The details, mm, that's good discussion. The gospel is core. And that's what unifies us. Oh, I got to tell you a story. So I was, uh, I was a young man, and I was an engineer, and I was working for a geotechnical engineering firm. Uh, that means dirt engineering. <laughs> and the assignment was in the city of San Bernardino. city of San Bernardino is a terrible place. Don't ever go there. It's awful. <laughs> okay, that's not the story. There's a big plot of land, and there's going to be a big fat housing development on it, but there's a splinter fault of the San Andreas Fault that goes right through it. The geologist found it. So you kind of go, okay, are you going to build a house on a, on a fault, on an earthquake fault? Are you going to do that? Well, let's go find out. So we found out where the fault is, and then what you do is you trench, a four-foot-wide trench across it, perpendicular. And you go about 30 or 40 feet down. It's about four feet wide. And you have these flimsy little aluminum bars that hold the dirt together. And so one summer I was down in this trench, and I was with a geologist, and her name was Diane. And so one day we're down about 30 feet and we're looking at layers of dirt. I know, fun, huh? Yeah, real fun. It's such a sexy field. Um, and she turns to me and she says, hey, Billy, uh, you're a Christian, right? Said, yeah. She's like, how can you believe in creationism when science tells us everything happened that didn't involve God? And I was like, uh, okay, new conversation. I got to tell you guys, we had the most wonderful discussions down in that trench about God, 
about, we talked about Noah and the flood. We talked about the different layers in, the, in this wall of dirt. We were seeing like layer of sand and layer of clay. And she was teaching me all about the different processes that led to these layers. And then she would ask me about, you know, things like the age of the earth. And, and then pretty soon, you know what happened is I got to share the story of how Jesus intersected my life. And because we had a collegial conversation about an important issue of science and faith, she let me tell her my story about how Christ saved me and rescued me. It was incredible. And I really think that that kind of acts as a bit of a, a metaphor, if you will, to all of our lives. Because let's face it, we're in the trenches with people we work with, with our family, who are skeptics, who have questions, who are actually nervous about even considering the claims of Christianity because they believe that that polarity is true and they have to actually divorce themselves from their intellect and from science in order to adopt a faith, and yet they're still curious about Jesus. And then there's you in their life. And through careful study and through understanding the nuances of this and through God just working through you, you could be that person in the trench of their life that gives them the safety and the room to explore both the scientific elements of life as well as the important spiritual elements of life, and you're right there. I believe that this is the call of God on this church's life, and you're involved in that. And that's why this is so important. And so we come to the end. We come to the end of this message. We come to the end of this series. And in some ways, if I could back out a little further even, the, the story of me and the dirt in San Bernardino is a little bit like what we've been doing in this, um, in this series. We've been digging deep into some things, some things that tend to shake us around a little bit. And we're asking God, what does it all mean? And so it's been a wonderful journey. And I hope that you'll continue to journey with us as a church family as we move forward, as we try to, I'm not going to try to solve everything. We can't. We seek clarity where there's clarity in Scripture, and where there's not, we live in the tension of those things. These messages have reflected that. Our job as communicators is to be honest with you about that. And also to keep pointing us back to Jesus, who is the author, the creator of our faith, who created us, and who holds us in the palm of our hands, of his hands. He's a shepherd. He looks after us. And so I'd like to close this out, not only with this sermon, but also this whole series with a, a time of prayer as we sort of assimilate all of this and hide this in our hearts. So if you would, please, let's bow our heads. Jesus, what a great journey it's been on this last month or so. And we've covered some, some emotional topics. We've covered some cerebral topics like today. And so we get this grand picture of who you are in our lives, that you're a God who loves us on all kinds of levels, even when we don't have stuff figured out. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get a greater understanding of the fact that you are God creator, that you are brilliant, that you are you are. You are so magnificent in your capacity to create that all you did, all you did was nothing. You just was like, it was just like, so it was just a fraction of your powers, a fraction of your beauty created all of this. And so we just step back and look at it for just a moment and we just, oh my goodness, we're just in awe. And we thank you that you love us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us now continue to take our next steps with Jesus as we wrestle in the complexities of life. I pray that each of us carries you with us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. And we pray all of this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen.